Good evening, everybody. Just want to give you a really, really warm welcome to tonight's uh, program on race and the Christian. And I want to uh, also welcome those of you who are joining us online uh, in your living room or in churches across the city and across this country. Uh, my name is Pamela Brown Peterside. I'm a community group director here at Redeemer. And I'm also one of the staff members who's part of the Grace and Race team that have the pleasure of hosting this evening with you tonight. Grace and Race exists to help our congregation grow in its awareness of race, racial and ethnic differences in order for us to experience the richness of community made whole in Christ. And uh, I also have the pleasure of letting you know that Crossway, uh, the organization that are sponsoring this event, they are based in Wheaton, Illinois, and they are also the publishers of uh, Dr. John Piper's book, Bloodlines, Race, Cross, and Christian, which was the impetus for this event. Just as a matter of, of housekeeping, just want to mention, because of the live streaming and the fact that we have folks joining us online, we would ask that there would be no flash photography, and we'd also ask for you to um, turn off your cell phones or put them on silent or vibrate. Thank you. So it is my very great pleasure to welcome Dr. John Piper to New York City um, and to Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Dr. Piper is the pastor for preaching and vision at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. Prior to serving at Bethlehem Baptist, Dr. Piper taught biblical studies at Bethel University and Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota for six years. Dr. Piper has authored numerous books, including Desiring God, Don't Waste Your Life, This Momentary Marriage, Think, and most recently Bloodlines, Race, Cross, and Christian, which I mentioned is the impetus for this talk tonight. It's also interesting because the person who wrote the foreword for that book is Dr. Tim Keller. He's our second speaker, and he's Redeemer's senior pastor, as many of you know. He and his wife, Kathy, along with their three sons, co-founded Redeemer 23 years ago. Prior to starting Redeemer, Dr. Keller was first a pastor in Hopewell, Virginia, and then subsequently a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. Dr. Keller has also written a number of books, including Generous Justice, The Prodigal God, Counterfeit Gods, King's Cross, The Meaning of Marriage with his wife, Kathy, and the New York Times bestseller, The Reason for God. And then tonight's evening will be moderated by Dr. Anthony Bradley. Dr. Anthony Bradley is an associate professor of theology and ethics at the King's College in New York City. He also serves as a research fellow at the Acton Institute. He's also the author of a number of books, uh, including Liberating Black Theology, Black and Tired, the Political Economy of Liberation, and the editor of Keep Your Head Up. Dr. Bradley holds a PhD from Westminster Theological Seminary in Historical Theology, and he has been featured on C-SPAN, NPR, CNN, and Fox News, among others. So as you can see, we have a very distinguished uh, group of speakers tonight, and Crossway has also published some of Dr. Bradley's books, so there is a, a line, or as it were, a bloodline through each of these speakers that's connected to Crossway. So without further ado, I'm going to turn the even evening over to Dr. Bradley, who will be moderating for us. Good evening. I'm here to describe the format and give some general uh, instructions before we turn it over uh, to our speakers. Uh, this evening, um, Dr. Piper will give a uh, presentation uh, and 
Reverend Keller will give a, a presentation, and I will also give a uh, response as, as well. Uh, for those of you who are joining us on Twitter, uh, feel free to submit questions that you would like asked uh, during the Q&A session at hashtag bloodlines. And uh, later on when we do our, uh, our Q&A, it'll be an opportunity for all of you as well, if you have your cell phones, to offer uh, any questions via uh, Twitter as well. Our first uh, speaker this evening is Dr. Piper. He is going to speak to us on race. It's more than just a social issue. The most ultimate and the most central and the most foundational reality that exists is God. Before there was a universe, there was God. God is eternal with no beginning and no ending. He said to Moses, tell them I am sent you. I am who I am. He's absolute. Everything else is derivative. Everything else is dependent, including all human beings, us. Therefore, God is the most important being and the most valuable being that exists. Everything else has meaning and everything else has worth because of its connection to and its derivation from God and his worth. Everything has meaning and worth because it mirrors, more or less, God's worth and God's truth. His truth, his goodness, his beauty define all that is really true, all that is really good, and all that is beautiful. That's what it means to be God. That absolute, all-creating, all-originating, all-sustaining God created everything else, including human beings, and he created us, human beings, in his own image, Genesis 1.27, which means that he created us with the rational and the moral and the affectional capacities to image him. Images are made to image so the meaning of being created in the image of God is that we have a destiny or a design or a capacity to image God, to mirror God, reflect God. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. We are to magnify our maker. So his goodness and his beauty and his truth are to find expression and echo and mirror in us. So the Bible says, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone whom I created for my glory. So every human being is created to make much of God, to put his glory on display. That's why every human being that is in New York is in New York, in order to display the glory of God for what he really is like according to his infinite value. Or 1 Corinthians 10.31, that was Isaiah 43.7. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, 
do everything to the glory of God. So absolutely every person in every aspect of their lives, from the biggest to the little, is to live out the worth of God, the value of God, the beauty and goodness of God. And since God is most glorified in us, when we are most satisfied in him, he designed us so that he himself, and only he, would be our supreme happiness. Because that's the way you bring his glory to fullest expression. If you're bored with God, he's not honored by you or glorified by you. If you are thrilled with God, deeply satisfied with God in the moment of your greatest suffering, then he is shown to be valuable in your life. And so God designed you for his glory. That is, he designed you to be happy supremely in him above all other things. So knowing God, admiring God, treasuring God, trusting God, being near God, reflecting God, that's what we were made for. All the people everywhere in ethnic group, every ethnic group on the planet have that as their God-appointed calling and reason for being. So God utterly supreme in our affections and we utterly satisfied in his perfections. That's the way he set it up. So the greatest issue in the world, therefore, is that not a single person in this room or on this planet fulfills that design. None. That's the biggest problem in New York City, Minneapolis, Bangkok, Beijing. It is the biggest problem in the world by far. We have all sinned. We've all exchanged that glory that we were made to enjoy and magnify. We've exchanged it for images, especially the one in the mirror. And we find our satisfaction not in knowing God or admiring God or treasuring God or trusting or reflecting God, but we find our pleasure in ourselves being exalted. We want to be made much of ourselves. It feels so good to be made much of, and it does not feel good to human beings to make much of God. We are, all of us, fallen. We are bent away from God. We are rebels. We are blind, treasuring the creature over the creator, thus belittling the creator and committing treason against our king. Every one of you has done that. Every person on the planet is guilty of treason. That's the biggest problem in the world. When a whole planet commits treason against her king, that's the biggest problem. Now, in God's unimpeachable justice, he opposes us, therefore, with great wrath. He is very angry at the human race, which means that he would be utterly, we would be utterly and eternally lost, undone, desperate, going to hell, we would be undone eternally if God weren't more than unimpeachably just. If God didn't somehow undertake for this rebellious planet with all of us rebels, selfish, self-exalting human beings to intervene somehow on a rescue operation 
that made it possible for those rebels to have amnesty and be reconciled back to making much of him and being supremely happy in it forever. And that's what he did. He entered history 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ, fully divine, fully and perfectly human, Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he said this when he came. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Isaiah said, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. And by his stripes we are healed. We have all, like sheep, gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord God Almighty has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's 700 years before it happened. Amazing. Or Paul said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He did that intentionally to take that anger and that wrath and that curse on himself so that he could assemble a people who are forgiven when there's no wrath against them anymore. Or Paul in Romans 8, 3. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Whose sin? Jesus didn't have any. Mine. Whose flesh? Not mine. Jesus. This is called substitution. Jesus sent by the Father to be a substitute so that all the punishment I deserved went on him. All the righteousness I couldn't but should have performed, he completed. And the death I should have died, he walks into and it spits him out and he's triumph, he triumphs over it. That is what he did for his people punished and canceled all their sin in Christ, performed and provided all their righteousness in Christ, absorbed and removed all the wrath of God against them and purchased and secured their adoption into the family and their eternal happiness. And he did that by dying and rising again for them. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of God for this rebellious planet. And it comes to consummation in individual lives when they ask, you should ask, you said he did that for his family. That's right, I did. His, he did that for his elect. Yes. He did that for his redeemed people. Yes. How do I get in? I mean, can I get in? And the answer is yes. 
By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So by grace through faith. So faith means when I hear that message, I say, that is the best news I've ever heard for a rebel like me with the wrath of God on him. And you embrace it and receive it for the treasure that it is. That's faith. And it's free for the having for anybody in this room or anybody watching. Anybody who will receive it as their supreme treasure has it. And all of that is valid for them. Now, I call that last 12 minutes a Christian worldview climaxing in the gospel. And my argument is that that worldview climaxing in the gospel explains and undermines racism. It explains it and it undermines it. Here's my definition of racism. Attributing to one race intrinsic superiority or valuing it above another and then treating others as undesirable or evil. And I'm arguing that that is explained and it is undermined by that worldview climaxing in the gospel of Jesus. And let me just give you a flavor of what I mean by racism because, I mean, we all work in our teeny little worlds and it is not a teeny little problem. It is a history. A history-long problem and a global problem. It's not just a little black and white problem or a little Asian problem or a little Rwanda problem or a little Jewish problem. It is a massive, global, history-long, devastating, bloody, murderous problem. For example, the Armenian genocide in Turkey, 1915. A million, a million slaughtered Armenians. Holocaust in Germany. Six million. Who knows how many tens of million in the Soviet gulags under Stalin. The massacres in Rwanda, 1994. The Japanese slaughter of six million Chinese, Indonesians, Koreans, Filipinos, and Indochinese. A litany of history-long bloodletting all in the name of ethnicity or race. That is because humans are in rebellion against God. That's where that comes from. Exalting ourselves over against our maker, and of course, if over against our maker, over against each other. That's a given. Anybody that would have the audacity not to submit to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords would not have any problem putting you down. We find our pleasure in self-exaltation being made much of, and if I have to use my ethnicity to do that, thank you very much, I will do it. And that sin of racism that grows in the ground of of pride and self-exaltation is also undermined by this worldview. This worldview can handle, can explain the horrors of the world, and the gospel can 
undermine those horrors and begin to bring us free. For example, here are four pieces of the worldview, all of them undermining racism. At creation, all of us in his image, all of us in his image. Cataclysmic implications of human beings in the image of God. Every kind of human being. Second, sin and fall. We are one in our corruption. We are deep in solidarity in sin. You are so sinful and I am so sinful. We're right there together. There is no exalting of another above another if we are both dead, bent, rebels together on our way to hell. How vain is the exaltation of self sinner over another sinner. Third, the cross. Christ died to reconcile us both, talking about Jews and Gentiles at that moment, in one body to the cross, to, to Christ through the cross, to God. Or, you were slain, we say to Jesus in Revelation 5, 9. You were slain, and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and made them a kingdom, one kingdom, and priests, one priesthood to our God. This is why I said it's more than a social issue. Whenever I get to talk on this, I want to say to, to all conservative white folks who fear the social gospel, it's not a social issue. It's a blood issue. By your blood, you ransomed them, all of them. You died to pull them together. Revelation 5, 9. And fourth, faith. Not of works. And I think works means not only anything you do, but any distinctive you have does not commend you to God. Faith commends you to God, and faith is a desperate, I can't help myself, which puts you in line with everybody. And therefore, the way designed into the family is designed to remove all ethnic barriers. One last thing. The fact that this worldview can explain the horrors and can begin to undermine the horrors Leaves, leaves you with the question, why haven't we done better than we have? Why is the Church of Christ, historically, why does it have such a mixed record on this? And I'm going to close by quoting Mark Knoll in his book, uh, Race and American Politics. And Mark is one of the most perceptive historians I know. And uh, he argues that only Christianity in all of its compromises with sin can explain the compromises. I'll read this and then be done. To explain the simultaneous manifestation of superlative good and pervasive malevolence in the history of race and religion, neither simple trust in human nature nor simple cynicism about American hypocrisy is adequate. Something else must explain the pervasive commingling of opposites. That commingling has included domination with liberation, altruism with greed, 
self-seeking with self-sacrifice, economic independence with economic exploitation, tribalism with universalism, hatred with love. Any final explanation for the conundrums of American history must be able to account for a mind-stretching conjunction of opposites. It must evoke both the goodness of the human creation and the persistence of evil in all branches of humanity. It must show how the best human Creatures are sabotaged by their own hubris, and the worst human depredations are enlightened by unexpected shafts of light. It must be able to hold these contradictions, antinomies, and paradoxes in one cohesive vision. And he says that vision is historic Christian faith. And I close with this. From the much-used and much-abused scriptures, a long line of Christian readers have affirmed in various accents and diverse emphases a transcendent account for profound complexity to take the measure of human nature and human achievement. God made humans, and the creation was good. Yet at the same time, humankind has fallen and will never escape the effects of sin here. Further, God offers in the work of his son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, the transforming prospect of redemption. Yet, redemption never equals perfection. The redeemed must always recognize their own shortcomings and be filled with gratitude for all the gifts of creation, including other human creatures. So the gospel is not only the promise of deliverance, the gospel is also the explanation for our failures to reach it. Thank you. Our next speaker is Reverend Tim Keller, who will be speaking on racism and corporate evil a white guy's perspective. Um, yeah, that's a, obviously it's a somewhat uh, comical uh, title, but what I want to do is I want to I build on what John has just said, which John gives the, the theological bedrock for why racism is completely antithetical to Christian theology and a Christian understanding of the gospel. But um, I want to talk to you about the concept of corporate evil or systemic evil and injustice. Uh, how, and I'll explain this in a second, but I, I, I start off by saying Western people in general and white Americans in particular have little or no concept of corporate evil or they are actively set against the idea. I think it's very important for me as a white man to say, look, uh, that's, that's wrong, especially to say to other white Americans, many of, many of you are, uh, that's wrong. And if we don't get what the Bible says about corporate evil, uh, we will not only understand the Bible itself, but we won't understand what so many of our non-white brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors are saying. We just won't get it. We'll think they're all paranoid. Okay, so I'd like to talk to you first about the idea of corporate responsibility, corporate moral responsibility, corporate guilt. Secondly, systemic evil, and then thirdly, how the gospel addresses those things. 
Um, first of all, corporate responsibility. Let me just show you how big parts of the Bible, I'll give you three, Joshua 7, Daniel 9, and Romans 8, uh, Romans 5, excuse me, make no sense if you think of moral responsibility in strictly individualistic terms. If you're reading through the Bible and you get to Joshua 7, especially if you're a white American, especially if you're a Western person, you go, what? In Joshua 7, uh, I won't go into all the details of the background, a man named Achan, uh, an Israelite, they're coming into the promised land. They are strictly told, you, you we're not here for plunder. Uh, uh, Achan takes some plunder, a robe, some, um, uh, some wealth, takes it for himself, hides it under his tent. Uh, he, he breaks the law, he goes against God's will, goes against the law for the Israelites. And when it's discovered, he's not just punished, but his entire family is stoned to death with him. And uh, Western people, especially white Americans, go, wait a minute. He did it. They didn't do it. Now, let me just um, get right off and say this. Most people in most other cultures, most other centuries, understand why that happened. Uh, if you're a New Yorker and you have some objection to some part of the Bible that you find offensive, I want you to realize it's your cultural location that's causing the offense. Don't you dare think that just because you find that part of the Bible offensive, everybody in the whole world would think the Bible's offensive. That's culturally narrow of you to think that. Because most people, most places know that we are not just the product of our choices, individual choices. That if you can do something bad, the fact that you can do it, what helped you become the kind of person that can do it, was to a great degree your family. Your family produced you directly or at least failed to keep you from becoming that. And therefore, at least actively or passively, your family participates in your guilt. Most people, most places, Americans, especially white Americans, don't understand that. Most people, most places recognize that because you're not the product of your own individual choices. You are the product of a community. And you produce, listen, not only are you the product of a community to a great degree, but that you, by even participating in that community, are pr pr producing other kinds of people with their particular kinds of character, too, because of your interaction with them. So Joshua 7 says that there is corporate responsibility inside a family. Okay, let's take it up a little higher. In Daniel chapter 9, now we're talking about corporate guilt and responsibility inside a whole race or a culture. Because Daniel, in Daniel 9, confesses sins, repents for sins, says it's his responsibility to repent for sins that his ancestors did that he didn't do at all. They didn't do at all. Uh, especially, I mean, I still hear it, though, especially years ago, I'm an older man when I was, lived in the South in the 1970s. Over and over, I heard, I get back to this, I heard white people say, yeah, it's a shame what slavery did, but I never owned any slaves, so why in the world does anybody think that I, as a white person, now have any responsibility to that community over there at all? I didn't own slaves. But here is Daniel feeling a responsibility for and repenting for things his ancestors did. Why? Because he knows that the culture that he's part of produced the sins of the past, and he's still part of that culture. He senses the responsibility. The Bible senses the responsibility. He senses the connection. Now, let me actually let me, let me throw this over onto the positive. Not only will Daniel feel that... Uh, that the sins of other members of the community I participate in, so I should experience some of the shame and responsibility for that. But, but the good things that happen 
by members of the community, I, get, I feel I can take some credit for. Now, let's, let's be honest now, guys, men and women. If you're white, didn't you have a little trouble understanding Lynn's sanity? <laughs> Just a little? Come on. Come on. You can look me in the eye and say, okay. And the, the reason was because you were saying, if a white person makes the Nixon does well, I don't get all think, wow, I'm it's so proud to me. I'm proud to be white. You know. But that's because you are the majority here. And if you were in China and you were a white American in China, and you knew to some degree that there was, uh, you know, people often looked at you white Americans in this and that way, and some white American in China really makes good, and everybody's cheering this person, you would feel that that's reflecting good on you, wouldn't you? Because as a minority, you would sense the corporate connection, but you don't sense it here, because you're a majority. So if you take the Western individualism anyway, and you put on top of that the fact that if you're white in America, you've always been a majority, you just don't get all this talk about corporate uh, connection, that uh, some members of the community can bring guilt on the whole community, and some members of the community can bring credit on the whole community, and we don't get it, but that's only because of our cultural myopia. Let me go one step further, though. And uh, John has already alluded to this, and I'll get back to this in a minute. Go to Romans 5, and you get into the very heart of what's called classic federal theology. At the heart of classic Protestantism has always been this teaching. In, in Romans 5, Paul goes way beyond the idea that you, you, you are some, responsible for what other members of your family did, and he goes way beyond you are responsible for what other members of your culture do. He says you are responsible and you are condemned for what your ancestors Adam and Eve did. That is, just by virtue of being in the entire human race, you're responsible for things that you didn't individually do. You are condemned for what they do. And then, of course, he turns around and says, but by connection to Jesus Christ, you can be saved, not because of what you have done, but through your connection to him by faith. The whole structure of the gospel is based on corporate responsibility. If you really want to go all the way down and say, I'm only responsible for what I have done and only I have done, there is no gospel. Do you see that? At the very heart of Protestant understanding, and I'm not saying it's not the heart of Catholicism, I'm not a Catholic and I can't go there, actually, but I do know at the heart of Protestantism, the heart of, uh, and it, by the way, Catholics do, and or, Greek Orthodox do come to this in a somewhat different way, that in the end, our salvation ends up being corporate. It's not something we earn. It's something that comes to us by being joined with Christ, but our sin is there, not just because, of course we do sin ourselves, but we're also sinful and condemned because of our, our being part of the human race. So at the very, very heart of the Bible, at the heart of theology, not just, not just what the Bible says about you and your family, not just what the Bible says about you and your, your culture, but what the Bible says about you and the human race, how sin happens, how, how uh, salvation happens, it's all, there's corporate responsibility. You got that? And if you don't understand that, I, to some degree, Western people and white people in particular don't realize to what degree they filter out all kinds of things the Bible says. They just don't see them or they resist them because of that individualism. It's not biblical. It's not gospel. Let me go next step. Let's talk then about systemic evil. Here's what I mean by systemic. If you're part of a community, there are systems that the, the whole community, there's things that get done by the system. And you, by participating in the community, 
are to some degree getting that done, even if all you do, there's levels, there's levels of responsibility. For, I'll, I'll give you these levels. <clears throat> you might be in the community and know exactly what the system's doing and be happy for it and actually actively doing it. Or secondly, you might kind of know what's happening in the system um, and yet not, you know, don't, you don't think too much about it, but you're kind of in favor of it. Or number three, you know what's happening, but you don't do anything to stop it. Or number four, you don't really know what's happening and you don't care. And you don't even care to try to, uh, um, you know, find out about it. In every, so for example, Holocaust. Okay, let's go to the Holocaust. At the top of the system, I mean, the Holocaust killed Jews. Plus others, but let me go to the Jews right now. And it was a system. At the top of the system, at the most you might say, uh, uh, responsible, you had people that set up the death camps. Underneath that, you have guards and people who were in the death camps who were just following orders, as they said. Underneath that, you had people in the town, civic leaders, who kind of knew what was happening there, but they didn't want to know. Though very often, after the war, some of them committed suicide when they actually saw what was happening in the camp because they kind of knew, but they had no idea exactly and so forth. And then you go down to the citizen, the German citizen, who had heard rumors but didn't want to know and didn't do anything about it and just paid their taxes and worked. Don't you see that at the one end, you've got people who are more responsibly, you know, more corporately responsible, at the bottom a little less corporately responsible, but only all those people died because the whole system was working and everybody who was in the system, everybody who wasn't resisting the system was part of it because the system couldn't have killed all those people unless, the, unless everybody was doing their job, even just looking the other way. Got that. Let me go down a step. When I moved to a little town in Virginia uh, in the 1970s, one of the things I discovered, but I didn't really think much about, was uh, there were six city councilmen, women, city, city council members, and they were elected at large 25 to 30% of the population of the town was black. But because they weren't elected by region or neighborhood, they were elected at large by the whole community, they were all six white. The, um, the rationale was, oh, we don't want that awful word politics where everybody's fighting. And because the whole community is electing everybody, every single council member is representing the whole group. But the fact of the matter was, of course, that the poor part of the city, the poor part of the town, the school over there, the black part of town was just being absolutely starved of resources. Now, at the top of this system were councilmen and people like that who really knew exactly what they were doing. But very important to the system was uh, a young northern white pastor in his 20s and 30s who kind of knew about it and never really asked and just continued to support it just by not not putting up any kind of fuss and just participating in the elections, etc. It wasn't until years later that I looked back on the thing. By the way, that went away in 1983. But uh, looking back, the year after I left, looking back on the thing, I, <laughs> I realized, wait a minute, what was I doing? I was part of a system. Did I experience some corporate responsibility? Absolutely. In the narrow, I was, I was responsible for something that was keeping the people down, the poor black people in that town down partly because I didn't care enough to really think about it. In the broad, by being a white man in the South in the 1970s, and I actually had an elder in my church whose father had fought in the Civil War. You can figure that out, it actually happened. 
He was in his 70s. His, his father had fathered him when he was 65. He had lied about his age and gotten into the Civil War at the age of 14. But by gosh, I had a, <laughs> I had a Civil War, I mean, a guy whose father was a Civil War veteran in 1975 on my session. So the Civil War wasn't that far uh, back. And for any white person in that town, when so, it was so obvious that so many of the, the poor black people in that town were in that situation over the generations because of slavery. For me to say, I don't have anything to do with that, I don't have any responsibility to do something about their plight is just unbiblical. Um, there are also, let me just give you, you need to look. What I mean by systemic evil, here's a definition. It is a system that excludes and marginalizes people on the basis of race, even though most of the individuals in the system are not probably intentionally trying to do it. The individuals aren't intentionally trying to do it, but they're part of a system that's doing it. And therefore, there's guilt, and therefore, there's systemic evil. So, for example, let me give you, uh, let me give you a mini-system. I knew a man who was the, uh, the head of a uh, uh, car dealerships, a set of car dealerships in the South. And the car dealerships, the, the way in which things were done was you could come in and negotiate, and the salesman had a pretty big window of what they could give you the car for. So they would negotiate, and you would negotiate, and it was a way of, it was a lot of horse trading going on, except it was car trading, I guess. And uh, uh, the, the salesmen uh, could, couldn't go lower than this, but they could get this high. And so it was, a, it was partly, a, it was a tradition. Somebody did some research and found out that, A, men always were better negotiators with the salesmen than women. And white men were, white men and white black men were better negotiators than African-American women. And so when somebody actually looked at what was going on, African-American women were regularly paying far more for their cars and were actually subsidizing the, uh, 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 you know, the price of uh, what white men were paying for cars in that particular town. And so they realized that even though nobody thought they were doing something, if the result was unjust, then it was unjust. Then even though there was nobody in there who originally had said, let's do it this way because that way we will really hurt African-American women. But they were hurting African-American women. There's two things you can do. On the one hand, you could say, because we're not deliberately trying to hurt African-American women and we make better profits this way, we have no responsibility. But the owner, a Christian man, said we do. And he changed the model. He changed the whole approach. His own profits have gone down, but he says it's the only way to be just. Have you got the eyes to see systemic evil? Or are you a typical white Westerner? I know a lot of you aren't white, and a lot of you aren't Westerners, but I'm particularly looking to you. Uh, do you have the eyes to see that kind of thing? Do you, and if you do see them, or do you take responsibility? Now, lastly, how does the gospel actually um, address this? On the one hand, you've got to keep in mind that just converting some individual with the gospel if, if the system needs to be dealt with, won't be enough to deal with racism. I mean, you know, the tr to me, the most dramatic example of that was um, Robert Linthicum some years ago wrote a book called City of God, City of Satan. He tells a true story about how when he was a young man, uh, a kind of a minister student, he spent a, a summer doing evangelism and ministry in a big city. He met a girl named Eva who was from the project. She was from a very poor background, a black girl, African-American. He, uh, she became a Christian under his ministry. He put her in a Bible study. She was growing. 
went back to school, seminary, college, something like that. A year later, came back to see his friends and found out that Eva had gone into prostitution. She, he found her. He started berating her. He started saying, why didn't you keep going to your Bible study? And then she said, men came, told me I looked good, said they wanted me to be a prostitute, and if I wasn't, they would beat up my father and my brother. And uh, this is Robert Linthicum, the author, saying, so I said to her, Eva, that's just terrible. You should have trusted God and gone to the police. And she said, it was the police who came and said they were going to beat up my father and my brother. What was I going to do? And Linthicum said, I suddenly realized, I don't think it's going to be enough to help her just by converting her and getting her to a Bible study. I've got to do something about the system. There's a corrupt system going on here. And of course, black and Hispanic women were being uh, used in this way. Now that's a, a, a particularly dramatic, very vivid, I try to show you the car dealership to show you the systemic racism can happen at all kinds of levels, almost at an unconscious level, but there it is. At the other end, that's very, very uh, you know, obvious. But it just goes to show you've got to do something about systems. You can't just simply say, we're just going to convert everybody and convict them of the individual sin of racism, everything will be okay. Here's three things that the, um, three ways the gospel, I think, can address this. Number one, you already heard me say something about this. If you begin to understand gospel theology, the idea that a lot of people say that the very doctrine that Adam and Eve's sin is imputed to me, so I'm guilty, and now when I believe in Jesus Christ, not only are my sins put on Christ, but his righteousness is put on me, and I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I've had people, I've seen people criticize in reviews of John's book saying Reformed theology, Protestant theology, classic imputed, imputed uh, righteousness theology is individualistic and it's no help. And I'm trying to say, are you kidding? Are you, have you read this? To me, the reason that I have been able to get beyond my individualism and start to think in terms of corporate responsibility is because of the gospel. It gives anybody who really deeps, you know, digs down into it the ability to see that God sees things happening through communities, through bodies, not just simply through individual uh, actions. And so on the one hand, I'd say the gospel theology gives people, even those of us from the most individualistic background, the, the spectacles through which we can finally start to see things we never saw before. We can look at things in other, in other ways other than just simply individual uh, rights, individual actions, number one. Number two, the gospel changes your identity so that you are less sucked in to the social system around us, which tends to be racist. Michelle Alexander, in her book, The New Jim Crow, points out that gangster rap culture, this is her view, and you know she's a sociologist and all that, she's not a psychologist, but I think she's right here. Gangster rap culture is a way for stigmatized people desperately trying to do something about their low self-image, and they are embracing the identity given to them by the society as criminals. So they embrace you know, beating up women and violence and are proud of it. And it's a desperate way for people to say, okay, you're going to treat me as a criminal, I'm going to revel in being a criminal, but of course all it does is it digs them in deeper. They're, they've got to have an identity that even if they do go to prison, keeps them from being sucked into what the culture is telling them about themselves. On the other hand, um, Bill Stuntz, 
recently uh, died, has died, unfortunately, and he was a great scholar of criminal uh, law at Harvard University, he wrote, wrote a book that came out after he died called the, um, uh, the Collapse of American Criminal Justice. It's an amazing book. And he points out that in the 1840s, he says, police, the pol police forces were invented. You know why? Because of the Irish. The Irish showed up in the 1840s. They came here because of the potato famine. They came into the big cities, and there was all this violence, and everybody said, oh, my gosh, the Irish. They were the very first, um, you know, they were the first urban uh, criminal uh, culture. And actually, um, police forces were invented to deal with them. But he pointed something out over a period of 20 years. He said, Irish criminals were tried by Irish juries. They were, they were tried by Irish judges. They were arrested by Irish policemen and Irish district attorneys. In other words, it says the Irish community was empowered to actually deal with their own crime problem and they got on top of it. But these inner city black communities are not empowered to do that because the criminal justice system, he says, is in the hands of white people and particularly white suburbanites, people who don't even live there. And he makes a long list of the ways in which the criminal justice system is absolutely broken and it's one of the reasons why, it's one of the reasons why uh, you know, black male incarceration rates are far higher than they were just a generation ago, far higher. He says it's absolutely broken until white people begin to realize that they are us. He actually said, Michelle Alexander does the same thing at the end of her book, saying that the you know, criminal justice system right now is a disaster for black people in general and black males in particular. And she says there isn't any way out of it unless white people get some kind of new understanding some new, some new understanding that we are together, some new humility, some new sense of care and love. There's a place in James 1, verse 9, that says, the poor believer, this is a paraphrase, but the poor believer should take pride in his high position and the rich believer should take pride in his low position because he's going to pass away like a flower of the field. And probably what that is saying is this, if you are a Christian affluent person, you should remember that you are a sinner. That's one of the things the Bible says. If you are a poor person and you become a Christian, you should remember that you are a child of the king. You should think of your high position. The gospel takes white people and keeps them from really getting their identity from their place in the society. And it takes poor people and it keeps them from taking their identity out of their place that's been assigned to them in society. And that helps destroy the power of the system. Lastly, an awful lot of people that talk about systemic racism and evil and talk about systemic race injustice are incredibly self-righteous as they do it. Christians ought to get alongside of people who say the criminal justice system, um, there's systemic evil that are keeping people of color and non-white people down, that the, the school system, there's a whole lot of systems out there that are a huge problem, even when you have individual rights and that kind of thing. But the fact is that so many of the crusaders against systemic racism and injustice have an enormous amount of self-righteousness and anger that makes people write them off. If we're Christians, we know that we're sinners saved by grace. The gospel should humble us so that when we talk about injustice, we don't 
look at everybody else as the problem. We're the ones who understand these things. All you idiots that don't believe in systemic evil. I heard Tim Keller preach on it. I know. And you're just a stupid, individualistic white person that doesn't understand these things. You just don't understand. But I do. See, the gospel takes that out of you forever and makes you a person who will probably be more likely to persuade people. So in all those ways, the gospel, I think, um, takes a look at corporate evil, helps us understand it, and changes our hearts and, and changes our ways of thinking so that we can do something about it. Thanks. Thank you very much, Dr. Keller. That uh, one illustration about the car made me glad I have white friends, white male friends, <laughs> for my next vehicle. I'll send my friend Shane or something in <laughs> to buy that uh, uh, for me. Thank you. Thank you both uh, very much. I don't have a title for uh, my, my remarks. I do want to say that uh, what will happen over the next few moments is uh, for me to make a case not only for why God cares, for uh, the application of the gospel to this issue, but to also make the case that God cares about the systems because they are actually a part of his uh, creation. I stand here in front of you with the last name Bradley. I'm from the Bradley Plantation in Escambia County, Alabama. Every time I see my name, I'm reminded of the plantation from which my family comes in Escambia County, Alabama. I stand here as a descendant of a family of preachers, which I will try not to start preaching to you, although there's a Bible there and I'm tempted, I won't do that. But I I stand as, as, as a witness to the progress that's actually happened in this country as someone from the Bradley Plantation in Escambia County, Alabama. I can now proudly tell you all that not only am I from the Bradley Plantation in Escambia County, Alabama, but a few years ago my family members gathered together and actually purchased the property And so now the, the, the same acreage that used to own us, we now own it. I stand uh, having uh, listened for years and years and years to uh, my own parents tell brutal stories of being raised in the Jim Crow South in, in Alabama and in North Carolina, hearing my, 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 my aunts and uncles and grandparents telling stories of of being treated like, like animals, and I grew up hearing that. And as someone born after the Civil Rights Movement, there was a lot of pressure on my generation to do the things that my parents could not have done because of not only the, the racism from white Christians, but also the... the uh, 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 barriers and impediments that were embedded in the system. And so I, I, I stand here listening to, to what is true about the gospel as it transforms people, but what is also true 
about God's intention to redeem the creation, that which he has made for his purposes and for his will, for our good and for his glory. And I am I'm thankful to uh, John Piper for writing the book uh, Bloodlines and, and for confessing his, his own story. That is the type of confession that builds bridges. We need more uh, brave men and women of, of your generation, as young as you are, going on what, 28, 29, <laughs> confessing, being honest, telling stories of how they, they failed, how they were able to see and, and, and be changed. Those are the types of things that, that from uh, my parents' generation, uh, having grown up in the South, need to hear. I'm thankful that, that the work and person of Jesus Christ and the gospel is laid forward as the reconciling point of contact for understanding our solidarity as followers of this Messiah promised to David. See, we are we're right here tonight, right to point out that, that racism is the only way to purge the church of the sorts of, of perverted ideology that changes the way we see other people. And it is, it is the best and only way to have the widespread social change that radically reorients the way in which we engage the creation. Now, my recommendations for moving forward for what we have initiated as, as we talk about the gospel is biased. I'm, I'm, I'm biased because I'm, I'm trained in this, this tradition that focuses on, on covenant theology and covenantal apologetics and, and, and ethics. And in my tradition's training what we see as the, that category of, of the gospel is a good beginning, but doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't go deep enough to fully and deeply dismantle the creational and eschatological violence that racism commits against the grand narrative of the redemption that was accomplished and applied at the cross as promised in the specifications of God's covenants with Abraham and David. In fact, if I were to write my own book about race and Christianity from my tradition, I would have to title the book something like Covenant Lines, Race, Grace, and God's Redemptive Mission from Genesis to Revelation. You see, what's so amazing about, about the gospel is that because of our union with Christ, Jews and Gentiles, white, black, yellow, red, male, female, are all members of the same covenant community, it's the same holy nation, equal heirs of God's covenant promises explicated throughout the entire redemptive story. See, racism is not only an attack on the gospel, even worse. Racism is a vile and vicious attack on God's covenant story of redemption. And so a discussion of racism in God's world must include, of course, very biblical reflections on the doctrine of, of salvation and the doctrine of Jesus Christ 
but we cannot be satisfied with hanging those things just on those two doctrines because if we do, we then are, are, we then struggle to understand the difference that it makes to systems. We often will limit it to just people. So this redemptive historical approach is, is necessary because Western Christianity tends to whitewash Jesus of his ethnic identity as if his Jewishness is not relevant to his humanity and turns him into a raceless white male with brown hair and brown eyes. You see, if you read the sermons preached to slaves and, and the prayers of the Puritans who were chaplains on slave ships, slaves were told that God loves them and, and cares for them, that Jesus died for their sins and that they stand before God as sinners saved by grace alone. The difference is that slaves were told that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life as a slave. That this a wonderful plan for your life is to be subordinate to whites because whites have different promises and callings from God than blacks. So Reformed theological ethics which orients this discussion not only in terms of, of salvation and Christology, also orients this discussion in the Bible's grand narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. God's covenant story with his people and his entire creation. You don't get past the preface of, of Mike Williams' book, Far As the Curse is Frowned. Mike Williams teaches uh, systematic theology at Covenant Seminary without the realization of the importance of this grand narrative. He says this, the creation, fall, redemption, consummation storyline is the central theme of the scriptures. And it forms the Bible's overarching literary structure. Fall and redemption are meaningless outside of the context of God's creation. Creation and fall together are the presupposition of the history of redemption considering in Jesus Christ. Uh, moreover, Dr. William Edgar, professor of apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary, in his book, Truth in All Its Glory, says this, that the Reformed succinct synopsis of the Christian faith as creation, fall, redemption explains why Christians care about the environment and business, ethics and arts and media and racism and human trafficking and all forms of social injustice and oppression. In fact, Henry Van Til in his book, The, the Calvinist Concept of Culture, observes this, that the Calvinist does not become one-sidedly Christological and soteriological in his interpretations of man's calling, but he continues to make the doctrines of creation and the providence and providence a part of his working capital. He does not believe, as some Christians seem to do, that God now excuses believers from their cultural calling due to the urgency of the missionary mandate which calls the church to make disciples of all nations. So Reformed black theologians discuss race beginning with the doctrine of creation because that addresses the wedge that white Christians have attempted to place between white and, and black existence. 
I focus in my own writing on, on race. Black theologians like Bruce Fields at Trinity Evangelical uh, Divinity School focus on race and the image of God in his book on black theology. Vincent Baycoat at Wheaton uh, College introduces a discussion of black racial identity in terms of creation. In our book, keep your, your, your head up. And, and Baycoat acknowledges that these vital categories and doctrines under, help us understand who we are and how we should live. And here's why. Because Abraham Kuyper makes this profound statement that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry mine. Christ, who is sovereign over all and and is king over all, cares just as much about the injustice in, in the church the injustice in neighborhoods, as well as the injustice in the boardroom and in business and in sports and in Florida. Why? Because we must go deeper. Why? Because, because the gospel and the history of God's covenant story of redemption orients us to, to the fact, as we see in Colossians chapter 1, that God is reconciling all things to Christ. And so in Romans 8, it re- we're reminded that, that the whole creation groans for the sons of God to be revealed because those things that have been in the frustration in the creation because of the fall are attached to decay. So Professor Williams and Professor would agree with Professor Edgar, who says that just... As the fall affected the entire cosmos, so does redemption. It's comprehensive. The heaven, the the new heaven and the new earth will not be a place for souls only, but also a remade humanity living in a new cosmos. So Christianity says no to racism in the church and in any social structure that Jesus Christ is sovereign over. Discussions about the role of personal responsibility versus systemic intervention are somewhat secular because for Christians who are oriented toward God's redemptive mission over his entire creation are not asking questions of if. They're asking questions of how. And so as we think more broadly about this redemptive uh, uh, a story, God's covenant story of, of, of redemption. Uh, I'm reminded that that means that, that we have to take a step back and think holistically and ask the question, what is God's will for humanity? That would, in fact, be a challenge to some who conflate and often confuse the sort of small little trinkets of change with the type of change that would be pleasing to the Lord. One of the things that I've been interested to study is, is, is the tendency for people to conflate abolition with loving black people. That is not the same thing. And historically, we've seen demonstrated that abolitionists were often no less racist than slave owners. You could be against abolition 
Sorry, you could be for abolition, not because you love black people. Just be, you could be, you could be uh, uh, against abolition. Sorry, you could be against uh, slavery simply because you didn't want those people who were just a step above monkeys to be slaves. And unfortunately, those things get, 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 get conflated. And my own concern is that we move this conversation forward as we think about the depth and the expanse of God's concern for not only souls and people, but also his concern for systems and structures that don't mirror his glory, that he sends his people into on purpose because all things are being reconciled to Jesus Christ, that we have to ask deeper, more penetrating questions. One of the things that that evangelicals need to do is actually listen to black and brown and yellow people. That the discussions of race have to be led by people who, whose perspective is different, who actually can, can communicate the ways in which they've been impacted and affected by race. So one of the dreams that I have is that one day, evangelicals will engage black theologians. That, 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 that one day evangelicals will listen to and dialogue with theologians from the black church tradition asking different kinds of questions. J. Cameron Carter at Duke, Willie Jennings, Dwight Hopkins, Cornell West, James Cone, we have to begin dialogue with those and also listen to black theologians and black pastors and leaders who are on the forefront right now, like Bruce Fields at Trinity, Vincent Baycoat at Wheaton, etc. We also have to not only listen, but, but think differently. One of the questions, Dr. Keller, that you raised in the preface of Bloodlines is why is it that a lot of uh, whites don't don't talk about race. A lot of preachers don't talk about race. And I think in part because when we think about racism, we think about it in terms of what happened prior to the civil rights movement. But we cannot have this discussion about race, and I'm glad you brought up the issue about systemic sin, without talking about white privilege. We cannot have this, 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 this discussion about race until we talk about microaggressions. I'll give you an example of both of those things that happen to me on a regular basis. When I often tell people that I graduated from Clemson University, which, by the way, won the ACC championship in football last season and also had a top 10 recruiting class for the second year in a row. We'll see you in the fall. When I tell people I went to Clemson, the first question they ask me is this. Did you play football? I don't know why they think that, but that's the first question I usually get from white evangelicals. Did you play football? Or even here in New York, this happens to me all the time, especially in Midtown. I'm in a department store dressed just like this. And I repeatedly get asked questions about whether or not an item is on sale. 
Because even in Manhattan, to see a black man in a suit and a bow tie in the middle of the day shopping is weird. The assumption is that this must be, this must be some sort of employee of the store because this is what blacks, this is the only reason why blacks are actually in Manhattan because Manhattan's become so gentrified. We've even lost the sense that we, we are here and live in Manhattan because of gentrification. We also must do this. And this is my deepest burden, and, and this is something, um, uh, Dr. Piper, that you mentioned in your comments about Trayvon, and, 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 and I would say needs to move forward because it wasn't discussed too much in your uh, 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 book, is that we need to frame this discussion around love. It, it surprises me the extent to which Jesus' own teaching about loving one's neighbor is often missing from this discussion. We often want to transact reconciliation, have meetings and sing kumbaya and give people hugs. But often thinking about the, the difficulty and challenge of actually loving someone, loving your neighbor in the same way that God loves us. And so we have to remember, as I think about my parents' generation, what they heard from white Christians on both sides of Jim Crow was that they were saved by grace and that we would be together in the eschaton. But what they did not hear from white Christians is that they were worthy of being loved by them. And so finally, as I think about the excellent start that we have with, with books like, like, like Bloodlines, that we need to go much, much deeper. And so the challenge even for the both of you as you discuss races is what next? That much of the credibility of what, of what is said here will be measured on the basis of, of what you all do for the next five to ten years in light of this discussion, if your churches continue to look the same way they look now, if the leadership in your organizations don't change, people will be suspicious that this is just simply rhetoric. So, for example, when you look at a conference uh, website about the gospel that has 20 speakers listed and 19 of the speakers are white and one speaker is black, people will raise questions from the outside because it looks suspicious. They'll raise questions about what's really going on. Is this really progress or not? If you're comfortable with being in a space that has 19 white speakers and one black one, as if possibly the, the 19, their only black friend is that one. And so this, this gospel that, that liberates us to, to love God and love neighbor and to, to, to think about a world in which God is pleased with how we live in society, how we live in our families, how we live 
in our churches means that we must remember that God is about the business of reconciling all things, ta panta in the Greek. And that mission of God is something that we have the opportunity to participate in. He uses us through our union with Christ to make this world right here, right now, reflect his glory and his mission. Because this world belongs totally and exclusively to him. Amen.